Welcome back to another episode of Breathe Underwater. I am April Salazar, one of your co-hosts. And I'm Whitney Waddell. It's nice to be back in action. It is so nice. It really is. I mean, you know what I heard the other day? I think that people who are starting podcasts only make it up to six episodes. Like every single time somebody says, oh, I want to start a podcast and talk about something that's meaningful for me. They, on average, make it up to only six episodes. What episode are we on now? What is this? This is going to be episode 10, girl. Okay. Oh. Yeah, so we're rocking and rolling, you know. I think we're doing pretty darn good. We are. So you guys have just heard, if you guys have been following along out there, to call your Landry story. Whitney and I decided to break up this segment into two parts because, as you heard, he has a pretty extensive story and one that warranted a lot of speaking time. So we thought it would be best to allow the story to flow naturally when we were interviewing Collier and then to have a reflection afterwards, which is what we're doing now. So pretty heavy stuff, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Like his story was very involved. There were just so many layers to the story that he shared and kind of how he has dealt with it and overcome those traumas. And what a trauma to come from his parents and specifically his father. Yeah, you know, this reality of living in a household with a narcissist, somebody who's incredibly manipulative and abusive, makes me at times, maybe not retreat, but certainly captures my attention. Because I lived that same reality myself, and my stepdad did abuse my mother enough to put her in the hospital, at least once that I know of, and there were many times where I felt he would kill her. There's a lot about how his dad manipulated him, how he treated him, and scared him into believing he wasn't going to have a secure financial future without him, that he wasn't going to get into any private schools, and that he wasn't going to have any money for college. And, you know, obviously his dad is a horrible person. I mean, murdering his mother, that's just completely unimaginable. But to start somewhere, I want to say, isn't living in poverty not really that bad if you escape a monster? You know, I went to public schools and I didn't have any money for college. I got scholarships, but also it really makes me think about how every single person's suffering is valid. So it's kind of like going back and forth because Collier knew a very comfortable life. His father was a terrible person, but he was the breadwinner. He was the one that could manipulate the situation and make it so that his wife and his child lived in fear of losing everything. The fact that he was manipulated very much by his father. And he expresses that as well, right? He he tells this story of it's this really coming to a, a light maybe in his eyes or he was finally able to really see these things at the age of 11. And so at the age of 11, spanning into probably about 12 to 13, because he says it's like very much a process. He just talks about the fact that he lived in what he thought, quote unquote, was a very normal family. His normal was emotional and physical abuse from his father and not necessarily him, but the abuse was to his mother. And he witnessed that. But he thought that that was a very normal place to be. Yeah. So he kind of walked on eggs shells and he was very sensitive around his dad so that he didn't poke the bear or trigger any kind of abusive episode from him. I can't, I can't understand that actually. What I can't understand is living in a household where somebody could actually commit murder and you know something that we kind of heard him talk about but we didn't really get to hear exactly how it played out 
was his adopted sister. We didn't really hear exactly what happened. Yeah, so he did mention that in his story, right? It was that he talks about that her, his mother filed for this divorce and it took like six months and that it was a very ugly time. But then he also states like how you had mentioned to your point about the public schools and that he was kind of threatened by his father. I'm going to make your life. In the mention of all of that, he just talks about the fact that after his they found his mother's body and they were doing this investigation that he had an adopted sister from Taiwan and how she we didn't really dive into how she played a role in all of this investigation or even where she is now. But like I said, many layers to his story. It was very interesting to hear all about it. I agree. And I did a little bit of research on kind of his story and things that happened during and after, you know, the aftermath and now what he's doing with this kind of post-trauma from his experience. And I think ultimately what happened to his sister is that she was replaced with another family. And I think that they changed her name and she grew up with the other family and she was so young that she pretty much has no recollection of living with Collier and his mother and father. So that's also something that seems a bit sad in his life is that here's his mother trying to create a happy family probably because she's experiencing so much abuse and then not only does he lose his mother but then he loses his sister that his mother brought into their family yeah and ultimately so his father right like he lost everybody and then he lived well and grew up then with his grandparents who were older in age, right? And so ultimately, you know, you understand age and life is not forever. So like multiple losses um, throughout his life, which is very, it's a lot. It's heavy. I think it wasn't his grandparents because remember both sides of his family disowned him for various reasons. It was a nice older couple that took him in after years of foster care. But, you know, something that I didn't get to ask him and... Maybe this would be unfair because I get these same what-if questions all the time. And I want to respond with, well, how do you think I felt? But I would have liked to have asked point blank, how did he feel when he found out that absolutely, yes, it was his father that murdered his mother, even though to this day his father has not admitted to it, even though they found her body in their Florida home buried beneath cement in the basement. I mean, newsflash, right? Obviously, it was the dad. But we didn't get the chance to just ask him, do you remember that moment? Or did you black out? Or does it seem like a whirlwind or a blur? Because there are things that I remember from my past. Obviously, nothing as traumatizing as this. But there are certainly things that I remember experiencing. And I can tell you exactly what my gut was feeling. I can tell you whether or not my body had goosebumps all over them or if my upper lip was sweating or fill in the blank. And I wonder how or if in that moment when he felt whatever he was feeling, how it was carried into adulthood, right? And how he now carries it, that weight of such horrendous news and very much his reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he speaks so, I think he speaks so frequently about the story and because you know in the beginning he talks about trauma hangover and how he talks about his story so frequently that it's you know there is a cathartic piece to telling your story to people and sharing that story but you know he also has this like he talks about a trauma hangover where it's just so much and it's 
overwhelming and it just a lot for him to process and deal with even now as an adult. So I think it's very, I mean, I would have loved to have heard that from him, but I think he probably finds, I know this probably is going to sound super weird, but I think he probably finds some joy in sharing his story. And then he probably also finds it to still be that very heavy, horrible feeling because what an experience to have to go through. I mean, he does also talks about the fact that he connected with the detective and worked with the detective at the age of 12 to convict and find his father guilty of his mother's murder. Correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't he stay in contact with him for many years? Yeah, like he like he worked with him for a very long time to build this case. And he talks about the fact that this case took a very long time to build because his father had already moved on, was in Florida, like had left their, you know, original homestead and had moved on to, you know, live this life with this woman that he was in a relationship with and actually had given her his mother's ring. Yeah. Yeah. And the woman yeah. was actually pregnant. And he talks about crazy. It's a wild. It's wild. It's a wild story. Well, you know, and also the fact that Collier found out that his mother knew all about the different women in his father's life and that she was going to look the other way as long as the father didn't bring Collier into the mix. And when he asked Collier to not tell his mother that he had witnessed them together that was overstepping the boundary. So that's when his mother ultimately filed for divorce. So I wonder if Collier ever feels as if he should have never said anything and if maybe he should have just played it out as long as he could. Yeah, like it started this domino effect. Yeah, I thought, I mean, we also have talked about infidelity and and affairs and abuse and all of those things on many of our other episodes, right? And so she... He was a it was a habitual cheater. Like he she knew about these relationships, right? Like to your point, and that he said that there were multiple stories and multiple cover-ups that his mother knew about and that he's his father had and that that she was aware. But we also talked privately about the fact that maybe and they had this agreement because she was so dependent on him. He also mm-hmm. talks about that she helped run his practice because he was a physician and she kept the books but she also supported him as he finished medical school or went through medical school and then when he became the breadwinner so to speak and controlling of the finances I guess in the home she became then very dependent upon him and almost was in this stuck position like she felt stuck trapped almost yeah and was and had to be okay with this agreement for these affairs I mean we spoke about this earlier that what a frustrating or suffocating place to be in as a woman where you feel completely paralyzed by your husband's support of the family something that's obviously circulated in today's society is making sure that it's important that you can take care of yourself and that you can provide as well and that you're not dependent upon somebody else I think that it's a double-edged sword, right? Because you want to make, well, at least I will say from my perspective, there's this idea of a traditional marriage where the husband's kind of the breadwinner. The wife is the one that manages the household and takes care of the children, and you both know what your roles are, and you're both happy and relaxed in your roles. 
So I understand that. But I'm always struck when these women have their rug pulled out from underneath them and what they thought they were doing, which was going through life with their partner, wasn't actually what was happening and their husband had other plans and didn't include them, so to speak. And that's where you kind of have to take a step back and ask yourself if something ever happened in my life, whether it be intentional trauma or accidental, would I be able to survive it? How would I be able to move forward and make sure that I can, you know, provide for my children and that everything's okay? I think that it really allows us a deeper look into what some of the households look like and perhaps allows us to learn from that. Yeah. And I mean, as I mean, in the episodes that I shared, right, I talked about going out on the porch and going over the bank accounts and the finances and trying to calculate if I would be able to manage all the things on my own because I had given that control to him, to my ex-husband, and I had given him the ability to be the breadwinner and to take control over all those things, which then creates exactly that feeling of dependent. Like you're dependent upon that person for everything and it, it creates this situation to where you feel so helpless right and then further that he also talks about the fact that when he was telling them about you know during this divorce time and the file for divorce he talks about his dad being very ugly and very mean and that he created this legal team to protect himself during this divorce right or and even I guess during his murder trials because he had the access to the financial support and he she did not so she was did, like he said, she did not have an appropriate lawyer. So, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty intense. That's for sure. I feel very sad for him, but I also know that he's doing everything that he can to learn and grow and help, which I think is a lot of what we who have experienced some sort of trauma do, right? Like we relive it, but we also recognize that it's not going to be our handicap and we love helping anybody else who might be experiencing the same thing. So thinking about him being affected long-term, I want to circle back to, I wish I would have asked him if he remembers such and such, you know, how he felt in that moment when they were like, yep, it was your dad. He, you know, murdered your mother. Shit, man. I was having a conversation with my oldest daughter the other day, and I asked her specifically, I said, is there anything that you could think of that would somehow traumatize you for the rest of your life? And she was like, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, think about like all these young kids who are on antidepressants, who are all in therapy, who need some outlet because they feel overwhelmed with life and they can't, you know, quite cope or function normally. They give up easily. They have anxiety. You know, the list is endless. I told her, um, is there anything that could possibly happen that would throw you into that category? I mean, aside from the immediate obvious, right? Like if she's getting abused at some capacity or if she's being starved or fill in the blank, that's horrible. But a normal, healthy girl from a normal, healthy family, obviously every family has their own crazy and their ups and downs, and it's always chaotic, especially in my house with four kids and all sorts of things going on. But I was wondering if, you know, there would be anything that could possibly happen or that she could learn of that would make her feel so betrayed or so affected by the news that she would need some form of lifelong care like a forever therapist 
to follow her or some kind of medication to treat the aftermath of whatever that trauma might be in her life, right? And so we kind of played this game of like, what would be something that would affect you? And she said things like, well, how about finding out that you and dad are not my parents? And I was like, okay, well, let's hypothetically say I'm not your mom or your dad's not your dad. Like, would that be something so heavy and so severe in your life that you would need like a lifelong therapist or assistance or fill in the blank? She thought about it and she said, I mean, not really. I, you know, would feel like I want to ask questions about my real parents and whether or not they wanted me. And I was like, okay, well, what if they didn't want you? And what if they dropped you off at a fire station like a stray dog? And how would you feel about that? She was like, yeah, that would make me feel really, really sad. But I mean, that's on them. That has nothing to do with me. So I guess I could get over it. I said, okay, is there anything else? And she was like, well, maybe finding out that my siblings aren't my siblings. And so there was this like recurring theme of being lied to. So we kind of explored that. But I said to her, obviously, if things like that are happening, it's because we as parents are trying to protect you until we believe that you're ready for that kind of information, to know that kind of information. So she understood that and we kind of moved on. But I was just curious what could damage and what kind of trauma at this age could she experience that would carry into adulthood. But, you know, we basically came to the conclusion that there's really nothing that could affect her and that she would need a lifelong treatment for. And again, don't get me wrong, until you experience something specific, right, you can't really say but I did find it interesting that a teenager in this day and age where reality is completely skewed with social media and unrealistic norms and standards and expectations that she feels strong enough to take on the world. Yeah. I mean, well, she comes from a very strong mama and a very strong <laughs> dad. <laughs> and again, I don't want to sound insensitive, right? I mean, look, I, I get it. His mother was murdered. I can't even fathom that kind of hardship and brokenness and pain that you would feel from that. So I, I understand it. But I also wonder what could ultimately happen, I mean, aside from something that horrendous, that could cause a lifelong trauma. I mean, probably lots of things. I mean, probably things that we don't even realize that are happening to others. I think this obviously the death of his mother and, and really being an instrumental piece of this investigation and bringing the you know conviction to his father of course will forever be a major traumatic experience for him i feel that like in my own personal life very lucky to as a child never have experienced anything remotely close to this or like this you know i think that's very who knows yeah it's very lucky and, you know, the space that I exist in as a mama is one where I always try to make sure that the children are healthy mentally, physically, emotionally, socially, you know, as much as I can. And I do that because I unfortunately do have the experience that comes along with a household that had abuse in it. And it's not pretty and it does weigh on you at times. And people have heard me talk about my demons before and how my demons surface sometimes and how I manage those demons. And a lot of other things that we'll get into when you hear my story. But I think at the end of the day, we are really lucky. And I think that you're right. 
These are heavy subjects, and especially with Collier. There's a lot of layers to his story, like you say, and I think ultimately he went through his drinking phase and hasn't been back there for a really long time. So that shows growth, and that shows, I mean, I don't know if I should venture as much as to say peace with his situation, but if nothing else, he's learning from it, right? Like he's not in a ditch somewhere with a needle stuck in his arm or drinking himself away. He's actually actively working towards sharing his trauma with people and sharing stories that are inspirational, just like we are. And I think that says a lot about who he is. I agree. I think in his sharing of his story, he very much has found, and maybe we don't call it peace, or, or maybe he wouldn't call it peace. But for, for this recap, we're going to call it peace. I think in the ability to share his story with others, he has definitely found some peace and a way for to help not only himself continue to heal and to continue to grow, but also to help others and those around him. Because he does talk about his declaration, right? And we speak on that a lot, his declaration that he was going to be okay, that part of his journey was to share this story and to talk about his embrace of the chaos and all of those things that were happening to him, around him. And he did some self-medicating, right? He talks about, about that and, and he's shared that. But I think as a young person, I, what, that's probably one of the easiest things to get your hands on to try to like make yourself feel better, you know? I agree 100%. I mean, how else do you numb the pain? Yeah. I mean, if, especially if you're that young and you don't even know what, you know, you probably, as much as we like to think he was, you know, such a very knowledgeable 12-year-old, he's still a 12-year-old and he's still yeah. a child when all these things were happening. Yeah. And I think he was actually 11 when it started and 12 by the time his dad was convicted. And it's pretty amazing that he's actually tried a number of times to get a confession from his father and that his father has denied him being involved in his mother's murder to this day. I think that it's so wild and it's pretty gutsy of Collier to go in and visit his dad and try to say, okay, well, why'd you kill my mother? That's literally looking at your worst fear in the face and calling it out. Yeah, like, okay, like James and the Giant Peach, when the bull's coming at him and he's like, I'm not afraid of you. That's, that's real. And that's the best way, in my opinion, to talk about fear. And that's what I tell my children all the time is that it's okay to be afraid. And we are all afraid of something. But it's how you respond to the fear that really shows who you are as a person. So looking at it in its face and owning it for what it is and feeling it in its entirety and then deciding what you're going to do with it, that's really who makes you who you are, right? Yeah. Yeah. And call your visiting his dad and talking about this. I feel like, wow, that's an amazing way to conquer that fear. Yeah. Because also too, remember April, he said that his dad wanted to take him on a trip to Florida after they found out. Yeah. All these things were transpiring. Yeah. And he wanted to take him on a trip to Florida. And that he said, I knew that if I went on that trip, I wasn't coming back. So like, he's not only facing the fact that, hey, this man murdered his mom, but that he had plans to ultimately end his son's life because he did not want this to come out. He did, you know, he knew he was like, if I went to Florida, I was never coming back. You know, he was going to kill me. 
I mean, that's just so freaking crazy. You know, there is a moment that I remember as a child that is a core memory. And I think I literally changed the fate of my mother's life in one night. And I don't, I don't even know if she remembers this happening, but my stepdad had either just come back from like prison or being thrown out and had beat my mother and then come back and they were fighting one night and my mom calmly grabbed her keys, grabbed her purse, and I watched her as she walked to the sliding door, you know, which was our front door, and she started leaving and there was this look on her face that showed an expression of loss of hope, like just utter and complete death. It was this scary look, like just horrible. And I'll never forget that look. And I must have been around 11, so right around Collier's age. And it was raining really hard that night with the flashing lightning and, and tough thunder and torrential downpour. And who knows, you know, where my brother was. He was off playing as an 11-year-old boy should. And anyhow, I stood up from the living room floor and I grabbed her arm and I said, Mom, don't leave. And she just looked at me without a response and just with this blank stare on her face. And she wouldn't respond to me. And I kept saying, you know, over and over, please, please, please don't leave. Please don't leave. And, you know, I started kind of crying and I was, I was a bit worried. And I was holding on to her arm in my hand so tightly that, you know, I wouldn't let her move. And then my stepdad came into the living room and he was still cussing and being really loud and being really aggressive. And I didn't pay him any attention because that was just kind of my, you know, day to day. And she looked over at him from, you know, looking at me with the same blank stare. And then she looked back at me with the same blank stare. And there was just no reaction, no expression, really. And I kept saying, don't leave, don't leave. And then finally, he realized what was happening and he got out of his, you know, whatever it was, his world of abuse and was like, oh, you're trying to leave, Sandy? You see your daughter here crying and begging you to stay. Maybe you should listen to her. And I was just like, oh, my God, shut the fuck up. Like, I'm trying to save my mom's life. Like, get the hell out of here. So, I mean, in this weird, twisted way, I think he knew that if she left, she was going to drive off of a bridge somewhere because we lived near two bridges, as you know, that unfortunately had a lot of accidents and you know I don't even know I can't even tell you how many deaths happened there and it was just so easy I think to drive off the bridge and I remember saying don't do it don't leave don't leave and ultimately you know she put her purse down and then I'm sure unfortunately got beat again but she didn't leave and so as intuitive as Collier was with you know if I go to Florida with my dad he's going to kill me I feel like I had a similar recognition that if my mother left, something really bad was going to happen. I mean, we're just kids, right? Like having to be put in this situation where you're thinking about life or death scenarios is just mind blowing. Yeah. I mean, it's it ha like, again, layers. The story has <laughs> it all. And so I, I'm so glad to recap it and to make sure that we kind of share our reflection on it I think he's very very I don't even know the word to be honest I feel I think he's evolved I think there's this post-trauma evolutionary space he's existing in and I think it's a fantastic place for him 
where he's really declared that he was going to be okay by sharing his story, right? You know, that that was his takeaway. That was his learning to breathe underwater, right? But I also feel that there's just a part of me that knows that there's always going to be this unhealed part because he lost his mother. A part of him. Yeah, yeah. a part of him because, he, you know, his mother, he says, was was like his most, you know, his companion. They spent a lot of time together as a child. He was the only child. And so I feel that there's also like whether this evolution that he's, you know, in, like he's evolved and he's grown and he has some peace, but there's also just a part of him that will always be broken. You know what? And I think that's the beauty of being human, right? Is loving all of the parts of yourself, including all of the broken parts. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, that's another. That's a wrap. (laughs) As always, we are so very thankful to all of you guys for listening in and going through this amazing journey with us. We are excited to share another episode next week. But until then, thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Bye.